Chapter 13 On my third day at the hotel, the chef de personnel, who had generally spoken to me in quite a pleasant tone, called me up and said sharply, "'Here, you, shave that moustache off at once, nom de deux. Have you ever heard of a plongeur with a moustache?' I began to protest, but he cut me short. A plongeur with a moustache? Nonsense. Take care I do not see with you see you with it tomorrow. On the way home I asked Boris what this meant. He shrugged his shoulders. You must do what he says, mon ami. No one in the hotel with a moustache except the cooks. I should have thought that you would have noticed it. Reason? Oh there is no reason. It is custom. I saw that it was an etiquette, not like wearing a white tie with a dinner jacket, and shaved off my moustache. Afterwards, I found the explanation of the custom, which is this. Waiters in good hotels do not wear moustaches, and to show their superiority, they decree that plongers shall not wear them either, and that the cooks wear their moustaches to show their contempt for the waiters. This gives some idea of the elaborate caste system existing in a hotel. Our staff, amounting to about 110, had their prestige graded as accurately as that of soldiers, and a cook or a waiter was as much above a plongeur as a captain above a private. Highest of all came the manager, who could sack anybody, even the cooks. We never saw the patron, and all we knew of him was that his meals had to be prepared more carefully than those of the customers. All the discipline of the hotel depended on the manager. He was a conscientious man and always on the lookout for slackness, but <laughs> we were too clever for him. A system of service bells rang through the hotel, and the whole staff used these for signalling to one another. A long ring and a short ring followed by two more long rings meant that the manager was coming, and when we heard it, we took care to look busy. Below the manager came the maître de hôtel. He did not serve at table, unless to a lord or someone of that kind, but he directed the other waiters and helped with the catering. His tips and his bonus came from the champagne companies. It was two francs for each cook that he returned to them came to two hundred francs a day. He was in a position quite apart from the rest of the staff, and he took his meals in a private room with silver on the table and two apprentices to clean white jackets to serve him. A little below the head waiter came the head cook, drawing about five thousand francs a month. He dined in the kitchen, but at a separate table, and one of the apprentice cooks waited on him. Then came the chef de personnel. He drew only 1,500 francs a month, but he wore a black coat, and he did no manual work, and he could sack plongers and fine waiters. And then came the other cooks, drawing anything between 3,000 and 750 francs a month. And then the waiters, making about 70 francs a day in tips, each a small retaining free as well and then the laundresses and the sewing women, and then the apprentice waiters who received no tips but were paid 750 francs a month, and then the plongeurs, also at 750 francs, 
and then the chambermaids at five or six hundred francs a month, and lastly, the cafetiers at five hundred a month. We of the cafetier were the very dregs of the hotel, despised and tuéod by everyone. There were various others, the office employees called generally couriers, the storekeeper, the cellarman, some porters and pages, the iceman, the bakers, the night watchman, the doorkeeper. Different jobs were done by different races. The office employees and the cooks and sewing women were French. The waiters, Italian and Germans. There's hardly such a thing as a French waiter in Paris. The plongeurs of every race in Europe, besides Arabs and Negroes. French was the lingua franca, even the Italians speaking it to one another. All the departments had their special prerequisites. In all Paris hotels, it is the custom to sell the broken bread to bakers for eight sous a pound, and the kitchen scraps to pig keepers for a trifle, and to divide the proceeds of this among the plongeurs. There was much pilfering, too. The waiters all stole food. In fact, I seldom saw a waiter trouble to eat the rations provided him by the hotel, and the cooks did it on a larger scale in the kitchen, and we, in the cafetiera, swilled illicit tea and coffee. The cellarmen stole brandy. By a rule of the hotel, the waiters were not allowed to keep stores of spirits, but they had to go to the cellarman for each drink as it was ordered. As the cellarman poured out the drinks, he would set aside perhaps a teaspoonful from each glass and he amassed quantities in this way. He would sell you the stolen brandy for five sous a swig, if he thought that he could trust you. There were thieves among the staff, and if you left money in your coat pockets, it was generally taken. The doorkeeper, who paid our wages and searched us for stolen food, was the greatest thief in the hotel. Out of my five hundred francs a month, the man actually managed to cheat me of a hundred and fourteen francs in six weeks. I had asked him to be paid daily, and so the doorkeeper paid me sixteen francs each evening, and by not paying for Sundays, for which, of course, payment was due, pocketed sixty-four francs. Also, I sometimes worked on a Sunday, for which, though I did not know it, I was entitled to extra twenty-five francs. The doorkeeper never paid this either, and so made away with another seventy-five francs. I only realised during my last week that I was being cheated, and, as I could prove nothing, only twenty-five francs were refunded. The doorkeeper played similar tricks on any employee he was fool enough to be taken in. He called himself a Greek, but in reality he was an Arminian. After knowing him, I saw the force of the proverb, Trust a snake before a Jew, and a Jew before a Greek, but don't trust an Arminian. There were queer characters amongst the waiters. One was a gentleman, a youth who had been educated at a university. He'd had a well-paid job in a business office. He'd caught venereal disease, lost his job, drifted, and now considers himself to be lucky to be a waiter. Many of the waiters had slipped into France without passports, and one or two of them were spies. It's a common profession for a spy to adopt. One day there was a fearful row in the waiter's dining room between Morandi, a dangerous-looking man with eyes set 
too far apart, and another Italian. It appeared that Morandi had taken the other man's mistress. The other man, a weakling and obviously frightened of Morandi, was threatening the vague. Morandi jeered at him. Well, what are you going to do about it? Ha, 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 ha. I've slept with your girl, slept with her three times. It was fine. Ha, and what can you do, eh? I can denounce you to the secret police. You are an Italian spy. Morandi did not deny it. He simply produced a razor from his tail pocket, made two swift strokes in the air, as though sashing a man's cheeks open, whereupon the other waiter took it back. The queerest type that I ever saw in the hotel was an extra. He'd been engaged at 25 francs for the day to replace the Mega who was ill. He was a Serbian and a thick-set, nimble fellow of about twenty-five, speaking six languages, including English. He seemed to know all about hotel work, and up till midday he worked like a slave. And then, as soon as it struck twelve, he turned sulky, shirked his work, stole wine, and finally crowned all by loafing about openly with a pipe in his mouth. Smoking, of course, was forbidden under severe penalties. The manager himself heard of it and came down to interview the Serbian, fuming with rage. "'What the devil do you mean by smoking here?' he cried. "'And what the devil do you mean by having a face like that?' answered the Serbian calmly. I cannot convey to you the blasphemy of such a remark. The head cook, if a plonger had spoken to him like that, would have thrown a saucepan of hot soup in his face." The manager said instantly, "'You're sacked!' At two o'clock the Serbian was given his twenty-five francs and duly sacked. Before he went out, Boris asked him in Russian what game he was playing. He said, the Serbian answered like this, "'Look here, m'en They've got to pay me a day's wages if I work up to midday, haven't they? <laughs> That's the law. And what's the sense of working after I get my wages? So I'll tell you what I do. I go to a hotel, I get a job as an extra, up to midday, I work very hard, and then the moment it struck twelve, I start raising such hell that they've no choice but to sack me. <laughs> Neat, eh? Most days I'm sacked by half-past twelve. Today it was two o'clock, but uh, I don't care. I've saved four hours' work. The only trouble is, huh, you can't do it at the same hotel twice. It appeared that he'd been playing this game at half the hotels and restaurants in Paris. It's probably quite an easy game to play during the summer, though the hotels protect themselves against it as well as they can, by means of a blacklist. <laughs>